Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Mother. Thank them both for meeting up with one another. I'm Spun Kennergaard. Thanks for stopping by. Tania Kuntz has been an information science professional for 20 years, all of which has aided her greatly with her hobby, genealogy. So much so, Ms. Kuntz is the current president of the Nashville chapter of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogy Society, is a past board director of the Middle Tennessee Genealogical Society, and is a county coordinator volunteer in the U.S. GenWeb Project. All that said, today we're going to learn about how one might navigate that proverbial woodpile in all of our lives. Okay, so give me one of your best stories or highlights from your work in genealogy. So I think one of my best stories is a combination. It relates to a DNA discovery that led to establishing how I was connected to this cousin. So I first did my genetic genealogy, the DNA test, back in 2013. I mean, I started with 23andMe. And then a few years later, I did Ancestry's DNA test. And when you do the test, not only do they tell you what your ethnicity composition is, but they also show you a whole bunch of other people that you share DNA with, cousins and relatives. Now, first of all, how are those two things different, the 23andMe and the Ancestry? So 23andMe is different because, well, they came on the scene first. Uh, They really were the first ones to get into the consumer DNA testing market. And their focus was on looking at your genes to understand how it impacts your health um, because Mm. it was founded by the wife of one of the co-founders of Google and the family has a history of Parkinson's and so they had this vested interest in understanding how genes impact health. So they started with the DNA test and you can get this whole health report that tells you your characteristics of health based on your genetics. But they also then also shared with you your ethnicity composition. So what percentage of your DNA matches you know, populations that they've tested in other countries, uh, such as countries in the continent of Africa or England or your, or your other areas of Europe. So they break that down for you. But then because they're analyzing your DNA, they can tell you other people that you share segments of DNA with. And I got interested in doing it because I was wanting to see these DNA cousins. Not so much for the ethnicity report. You know, I figure um, I'm descended from enslaved people here in the country, so I knew that my my ethnicity would trace back to parts of Africa. But where are my cousins that I connect with, and could I identify those relationships? Who are some people I can hit up for money? (laughs) Exactly. Are you rich? Yeah, we're family, right? Seeing those connections was what I really resonated with. So I did 23andMe first because, like I said, they were the first player on the field. Then I did Ancestry, and the reason you do Ancestry is because they really have the market share when it comes to family history. They're such a large company. So many people go to them that they really started to quickly build a database of people testing with their um, DNA tests. So I tested with Ancestry. Well, to get back to your question, one of my most interesting highlights is uh, a couple of years ago, I was contacted by a lady who said she was contacting me because I was one of her highest matches in the Ancestry uh, cousins list. Really? And she wanted to know how we were connected. And so I looked at her DNA profile, and I looked at who she shared DNA with that I knew as family members, and I could tell which branch of my family she was related to me through. She was related to me through my maternal grandmother's family, which came from eastern North Carolina. So I told her at that point, well, that's all I know. You know, I 
can't give you more information. We don't have enough details. And she also, when she took the test, discovered her biological father was not her. The the man who raised her was not her biological father. Oh, wow. So that caused her to pause for a little while because she needed to you know, sure. process that. Um, but she said, okay, well, I, I know you're related to me on my biological father's side because you don't match relatives on my mom's side. I said, okay, well, if you ever learn more about your biological father, maybe we can figure this out. Fast forward a year and a half later, she contacts me and says, I had a half-brother show up in my DNA results. So wow. she shared with me that she contacted this half-brother. He was open to speaking with her. They spoke on the phone, and she learned the backstory to her family. She learned some details about you know, her biological parents' relationship that, of course, could cause stress in any family situation. It was you know, not known to her biological father's family that she existed. Um, so, but they ended up welcoming her. And, and, you know, both her biological parent, her biological father and his wife had deceased. So they had, I think, 10 kids. <laughs> and most of the siblings were open and understood, you uh -huh. know, it is what it is, right? Yeah. It, it's no fault of her own. Sure. So they have embraced her as their sister. Well, that's great. So once she contacted him and she shared this with me, I go on Ancestry, start looking at his family tree, and he had done enough of his tree that I could see he had ancestors from Eastern North Carolina, same county where my grandmother was from. And so I was able to trace it further back and figured out exactly the couple that we had in common. And so now I know exactly how this DNA cousin that contacted me out the blue one day and I related. Wow. I can, we have the whole tree. Now, when they fill out these trees, do they put pictures of the, your They ancestors? do put pictures. Wow. As, you know, a lot of people do put pictures and documents. So everybody's different, of uh -huh. course, of what, how much they'll put. But in this case, he had a picture of his parents. And so I got to see a picture of them and documents of his grandparents. And so I got to see those. And that's what helped me be able to make the connection. Wow. Well, you've kind of touched on it already, but like, how did you first get into this? Because I, I think I've mentioned it to maybe kids in my class, and they kind of like, oh, they don't seem to care. They're more interested in the future and all that. Yeah. But, but there comes a time, I think, maybe biologically, that all of a sudden you're like, where did I come from? Right. For me, the impetus to really delve deep into understanding my family history start came after I had my daughter. And so she was about one years old, and I was cleaning up house and came across some notes that I'd taken from conversations with both of my grandmothers. And I had just, I had put the notes somewhere. They were getting torn and faded. And so I pulled out these notes and I was looking at them. I thought, you know, by this time, both of my grandmothers had Alzheimer's. And so I couldn't go ask them more um. questions. So I said, I need to document this. So I had an interest earlier, at least to do these interviews with my grandmothers, but never really acted on it. But at this point, when they had Alzheimer's, and I knew I couldn't go back and ask more questions. I have a new child, and I know I want to document this for my own knowledge, for the kids' knowledge. And so that's when I really got into doing my family tree, doing the research, seeing what I could find, the verified information, start connecting and reaching out to other family members, asking them questions, and I became hooked. Right. <laughs> so that's what did, and that was in early 2005. Now, obviously, you're going to come across two different versions of the same story. Mm -hmm. Do you just record them both? You do, because every story has some type of clue. And one mm -hmm. of the strategies that you use is, trying to get the feel for what really happened. You may not ever really know the truth, but you may glean enough from different places where you start to get a picture. Because even documents will have conflicting information. Sure. So you, you may never get the same truth from everything. Right. You put it all together into what's called kind of a reasonable conclusion of right. what it is you 
think is going on. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, so give me a juicy story that you've found out from... <laughs> a juicy story. Well, people like scandal. I'm going to use my own family. We're okay. pretty open about this. <laughs> my grandfather, my father's father, had two families. And Unknowns to each other? Known to each other. Oh, known to each other. Okay, well, and at least, at least he was honest about it. this was one thing I inter- asked when I interviewed my grandmother. I'd asked her, point, you know, pretty directly. I was like, what was going on here? Uh, so, and I say we're pretty open about it now. <laughs> my cousins hear me, the, you know, but I think, I think we're all pretty open about it. Okay. It's, it's not a secret. Okay. It wasn't a secret then. It's still really not a secret. Um, so I interviewed my grandmother said, Grandma, why, you know, he had another woman and he had children. So the way he had children was he'd have a child with my grandmother. Then he'd have a child with the other lady, a child with my grandmother, a child with the other lady. And they lived like two miles apart. Wow. The kids all grew up going to school together knowing they're siblings. So wow. <laughs> the whole community knows. And so when I asked my grandmother about it, she says, well, he was a great father. He provided for the family. I loved him. He said, but then she said, I then, did, did, I, then I did reach a point where I thought I need to move on. So she moved to New York and you know, left him, but... Did he marry the other gal, or...? No. Oh, okay. No. And so he took care of both families? He took care of both families. He must have been a hard worker, because... He, he was. He took care of both families. In fact, he passed away New Year's Eve, 1976. I was six months old. He'd been at a New Year's Eve party, had been drinking, and left because he had to go to work. So the whole story I ever heard growing up was... He was drunk driving because he was going to work. He was he felt he needed to go to work to provide for his family. Right. Uh, of course, it was a bad decision. He ended up getting into an accident and lost his life. But he was going to work. He was very driven to go to work and provide for his family. All my life, I've been making it. All my life, white folks taking it. It's all hard. They just breaking it. I do want to talk about a couple of sensitive subjects. Yes. So, especially with American history, the biggest blight on our history, of course, is slavery, I would say. One right. of the blights. Okay, so I got a ton of questions, mm-hmm. and you can address them all. Mm-hmm. Okay, first of all, I know it's difficult to find, especially if you're trying to help African Americans find their history, because they were, quote, a non-person. And so there may be some records of sale, but there wouldn't be, because they were kept illiterate, they couldn't have maybe written much in, like, a family Bible so, uh, so, so talk about correct. that. There are barriers when you're researching someone who was enslaved mm-hmm. because, as you noted, they, they were treated as property. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, while it's not it's not impossible to to find that information, it's just a different strategy that you need to use compared to someone who was not enslaved and sure. had rights and were established as you know as people. So, for researching African individuals of African American ancestry who have ancestors who were enslaved, there are all kind of records that you can access. Um, you mentioned uh, a bill of sales, right? Because as property, if you sold your property, you, there was a record. Mm-hmm. Taxes, you had property, you were taxed on it. So there are tax records. Uh, probate records, you pass away, your property gets passed on to someone else. So you find mentions and records of uh, enslaved individuals in all type of records from the people who enslaved them. Um, so it, there are many different ways to go about that process and learning it you know, it takes time uh-huh. and patience. <laughs> so these records are still available, like at courthouses? There are so many records available, really? yes. Like, I'll tell you, one of the most fascinating records that I have in my own personal family history is my family, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast or not yet, but it's from, it's from North Carolina. Right. After emancipation, North Carolina passed a law that said if you were a formerly enslaved couple that had been 
together, you could go to the courthouse and have your union officially recognized because before this, it wasn't officially recognized. So I have a document that was in um, the courthouse records. It's from 1866, and it's a cohabitation record of enslaved individuals saying, my name is, you know, so-and-so, I've been cohabitating with this woman for X number of years, and we have X number of children. So there's one document that was in these records, and it's titled Slaves of the Kemp Battle Plantation. And it lists his slaves, and it lists their names, and how many years they've been together, and how many children they have. One of the couples listed is Alan Wimberly and Della Battle, cohabitated for 36 years, 13 children. So Alan Wimberly and Della Battle are my fourth great-grandparents. And so when I saw that document, I, I was really just kind of mesmerized because this is a record from 1866 and it's been microfilmed and put online by the Church of Latter-day Saints. Wow. And so it's available for free on a website they operate called FamilySearch.org. And you can actually see the microfilm of this 1866 record. And there are my ancestors' names who had been enslaved. And not only did I learn how many years they were together, how many children they have, but that document also told me who their enslaver was, Kent Plummer Battle. He was a well-known... Um, businessman in Edgecombe County, North Carolina, and at one point had been president of the University of North Carolina uh, school system, uh, college system. Uh, wow. And so when I, when I discovered this and told my husband, Kalanji, who's you, who you found on his, your podcast, he said, oh, you need to go to UNC and ask for your money back. <laughs> I, like, well, I don't think it works that way. Right. But right. to know that that document exists, that recorded wow. their union and the number of years and their children and then identified their slaveholder. This is not necessarily related to slavery, but mm-hmm. uh, one time... A guy that had a crush on my aunt had done some genealogy stuff for our family. So it was mostly just a bunch of names and dates. Mm -hmm. So at the time it was given to me, it didn't mean that much to me. What I think would have appealed to me more if if there was a story, like some kind of like, oh, this guy was a character man, or he he had been in and out of jail, or or whatever. Are you able to find stories? And again, this doesn't matter about the color, but are you able to find like details about people? Yes, and that is what is most fascinating, is pulling together those stories. Because my family, they don't care that I found this document, Mm -hmm. but when I tell the story... Yeah. It becomes more interesting. Yeah. And even I talked to my sister, what can I do to make it more interesting? She's like, tell the stories. Because, yeah, we do the research, but the research is there so you can tell a story. Right. And so that's one thing I've been trying to focus more on is telling stories from what I've learned and what I've discovered and sharing those stories with the family. Now, to bring it back to slavery, were you able to find any stories about some of your enslaved ancestors yes. or, or so, people that you've helped? Well, it, it comes across in different ways. Mm-hmm. I, Okay, yes, I'll give you two examples. Okay. The same couple I just mentioned, Ella Wimberly and Della Battle, one of their sons was named Richard, and I was contacted by a descendant of Richard two years ago. She sent me a picture of a rocking chair that she has that had been passed down to the family. This rocking chair had been part of Richard's belongings when he left the plantations after uh, emancipation, and it was one of two rocking chairs that they had tied to the top of their wagon. One fell off and broke, but this one made the made the journey to Virginia and so she now has this rocking chair in her room so to know that that chair has been around since the time they were enslaved and came with them off the plantation literally is fascinating and it still works and it still works she uses it Um, built to last when you can't find specific stories about your let me rephrase when you can't find a story about your specific ancestor you can 
also look for contacts of other people in the area or in the community that may have experiences that you realize your ancestors were part of. Mm -hmm. So here's a second example. The, the Library of Congress did a whole series of um, interviews with formerly enslaved people back in the 1930s. The, the WPA. The, the WPA or, the or the, no, that was the... The writers, the Works Progress Administration, right, and it was it was a separate thing because I taught this in class. It okay. was the, the Writers Project. The Writers Project. So they interviewed yeah. people who had been formerly enslaved, and there was one interview with a lady from the same county where my this, this couple I'm talking about, Alan and Della, were from, at Tom North Carolina, and this lady tells a story of a a, a slave who killed a um, a white overseer and was taken to court for it. The battle family lawyered him up. They had, like one of the battle members was a uh -huh. battle family was a lawyer, so they represented him in court and won the court case. So really? he did not end up getting legally, you know, charged with the crime because they were able to say it was self defense. And uh -huh. so she talks about what happened in that case with this slave, and it was on the battle plantation, one of the battle plantations. And so I read that story, and I thought. This is the context for what my ancestors were going through. Like they yeah. were witness to this going on. It was, you know, it was another battle plantation, same time period. They would have known this is going on, and they, if they were telling the story, probably would tell it just like she did. Uh -huh. So, just it's not about them directly, but the context is part of their life context. That's fantastic. But on the other side, back to slavery, mm -hmm. um, to white people, it's awful embarrassing, you know, to have that in your lineage. And of course, the whole human history, there, there's something in the ancestral closet that, that we're not, none of us are proud of, but yes. especially in America, it's just, just a touchy yes. subject. I give the example of uh, actor Ben Affleck, who... Uh, who was part of a program on, with uh, was it William Finding Your Roots with uh, Henry Gates and come to find out he had some slave owners in his past and he pressured them to, to not, not put it in and they, they capitulated yes. so sometimes you help other people and of course sometimes you come in contact with that are people that would have been because of like the, the slave rapes and things like that that are genetically uh, related to African Americans yes. but in a really terrible yes. way um, can you give some examples of when you had to talk to whites about yes. this? And so one of the, one of the things uh, that comes up is kind of going back to the DNA testing. So I, as an African-American, will have DNA matches that are white. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had at least a few people respond... And then I've heard stories from other people who say, well, we can't be related. You're black on white. Mm -hmm. Like, there's not an understanding that you, a white person being related to an African-American person does not mean the white person is black. Right. Most likely it means that black person has Caucasian DNA because of what we know happened during slavery right. and the, the um, injustices that were brought upon women to you know, have unions with these, these men that were raping them, basically. So having to educate people about that, and because... And we reach out because we want to know what these connections are. Like, I personally, I want to know. I, you know, I'm, I'm not bearing judgment. of it. History is history. It happened. Yeah. Like, I can't change the fact that it happened. And you're upfront with that. To, yes, yeah. I'm upfront right. with that. I want to know what mm -hmm. happened. There's a really good example of, um, in Alex Haley, you know, his, when the DNA testing first came around, his nephew, Chris Haley, did a DNA test. And one of his matches... And maybe he, okay, he didn't do the ancestry or the 23andMe. I don't think he did a different type of test. But one of his matches was in the surname of the guy that had raped 
uh, Alex Haley's grandmother, Queen. So this isn't the root story, it's the Queen story. Mm -hmm. And they always knew from the oral history that she'd been raped by this, I think he was an overseer on the plantation. And Chris Haley's match was to a family member of that guy. And so they had the DNA evidence now to confirm, yes, that was the guy who fathered Queen's children, so a child. So, yes, it, it is. there is some education that's involved uh, because not everyone wants to face it. But then you have people who are very open about it. Oh, yeah, here, whatever I can do to help you. Because sometimes they have documents in their own family preserved wow. that can be helpful for someone who's trying to figure out what was going on with their enslaved ancestors. Family Bible records, you know, mm-hmm. other family records. So there's... There's opportunities there to figure out what really happened and what the case may be. I used to have a real good mother and a father, and they certainly stood the test. You mentioned family Bible. Uh, mm-hmm. To folks that maybe are uninitiated, because mm-hmm. it's not a tradition, and I think in some parts of the country or some ethnicities, but talk about the family Bible. Yeah, so the family Bible was often at least a, a, a way to record special moments in your family's lives. So you'll you'll see in genealogy, people will record and capture these family Bible records. Now, and to be clear, this is a real Bible. A like, real Bible. Yeah. So it's a real Bible, and there's often a page that says family births or, or family events. And so you write in their dates. We have one in my family. So family births, and you write down uh, Samuel Lawhorn was born in 1866. And so we have a family Bible record for a part of my family. Uh, many white families will have family Bibles. Like many families have these Bibles, and what you find is that during slavery, slavery periods, there were some white families that recorded their slave births and and date death dates. And so I've never heard that. Wow. Yes, they'll have their white family, and then they'll have the slave details. Wow. And so you can get information on slave individuals from family Bibles that belong to white families who owned slaves and took the time to record events. You know, a slave had a child. This is what she named is named, and this is when it was born. Have you ever ended up with Bibles like you find them like at pawn shops or, or Goodwills that or somebody I, else's family's record is in there? I haven't found Bibles. Uh-huh. Now, I do rescue items and try to associate them back to the family that it came from. Uh-huh. But I've not done it that with a Bible yet. Okay. It just now occurred mm-hmm. to me. I should be on the lookout. If you're, if, hey, if you see any, anytime I'm in like in a used bookstore or antique store and I see something that has identifying information... Oh, I'm very interested in seeing if I can connect it. At the end of the semester, I asked my students in the college history class, you know, I, I throw a bunch of quotes about history, mm-hmm. you know, like the philosophy of history. You know, some humorous things like Mark Twain saying, like, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And, and you know, if we don't mm-hmm. learn our history, we repeat it and things right. like that nature. Right. And uh, one of the questions I asked them, I said, do you think that people can be factual when they tell history and yet still be inaccurate. Or, is it the word I used? Be factual, but not be telling the whole story. Because I believe you can. Yes, you absolutely can. And I'll say, like, so I think when I grew up, we got a pretty sanitized version of American history, which was factual, mm-hmm. but it, it left out a bunch. Mm-hmm. And then I think now maybe this generation, they're making up for that. And, and some critics have said they went so far that you can find nothing good in American history. So what is your take on all of that? My take, I think, is just I want, I want it to be an accurate representation. Mm-hmm. Right? You can't, like you said, you can't be factual and leave out information. I think if you do that on purpose, you are misleading mm-hmm. and you're, you're being deceptive. And I don't want deception. I want truth and accuracy. Yeah, absolutely. I want to know the full story if possible. Like we said earlier, you may not ever really know it, but don't leave out information because you're uncomfortable. 
mm-hmm. tell the whole story. Okay. <laughs> like I told the whole story of my grandfather. I, mean, yeah. I can't leave it out because it could be uncomfortable. That is the story, and that was the truth. Grandma, grandma, what make you love grandpa so? Grandma, grandma, what make you love grandpa so? He's got the same pipe he had 40 years ago. You had mentioned Alex Haley a minute ago, and you have this little story where you found I something do. related to Alex Haley. So again, educate folks that, who have never heard of Alex Haley. Okay. So Alex Haley, he became very famous in the 70s for writing Roots, and that was turned into a miniseries that was um, extremely popular in the country and absolutely riveted so many of the population because it was on, I think, for six nights. And he tells a story of tracing his family history based on oral stories that he'd heard from his grandmother growing up in western Tennessee about a slave named Kunta Kente. And so he takes you through what kind of life Kunta Kente may have had, Kunta Kente's being captured in Africa and brought over to the United States and enslaved, and then his descendants on down to Alex Haley's family. So when this came out, it, it really launched... A, a huge interest in genealogy, not only for African Americans, but for many individuals, because it just resonated with so many people, this quest to know more about their family. And so he wrote, I mean, the book Roots was very big. I mean, it was a, a big book, like I said, a six-part miniseries. It's a brick. <laughs> it's huge. I've read it twice, I think. I'm due to read it again. Um, and so the story that I have from Roots... so. My husband Kalanji. So when Roots was done as a miniseries, they did the first one, and then later they came out with Roots: The Next Generation, which picks up where Roots left off, and that was also a miniseries. Well, Kalanji loves Roots: The Next Generation, and we would watch it all the time. So he likes it more than the. First he one. likes it more than the first one, and his his reasoning for liking more the first one is the Roots: The Next Generation picks up uh, during Reconstruction. And so it goes from Reconstruction to like the early 1920s or so. So it, he likes that time period a little bit better. So um, it's a little less painful. A yeah, little, a little a less little. painful. <laughs> he he really likes that. Yeah. So we were watching it one night, and um, in the in the story in Alex Haley's you know history of the story, there's a a couple he talks about that were not related to him, but part of the community in Henning, Tennessee. And it's a white man who was disowned by his family because he fell in love and married a black school teacher. And we were watching it and I thought, I wonder if I could find information about them. Because I knew everybody in the story was based on somebody real. Right? Right. He just changed names. So to be clear, he kind of made a fictionalized uh, story, but based loosely on tr- true events. On his own family... It was all real people. Right. Like his, he talked about his real grandmother, his you know his right. real great grandfather. But for anybody else in the story, it was based on real people. But he changed names. Well, now, why was that? You know, I don't know why he did that. Maybe, maybe just, artistic license. Maybe artistic license. Now there's this whole. I know this is controversy. There's this whole thing about Roots being fictionalized anyway, right? Right. So there's that. But this is separate from that. So there's his family, and then there's everyone else he talks about in the book. There's not his family. So he did just change the names, I think just for some privacy reasons. So he changed the names. So I'm I'm looking at this couple thinking, I want to see if I can find out more about them. And and to remind us, I I, I know who the the white actor is who played the guy, (laughs) because it's John Boy from The Waltons. Yes, Uh, which I had never watched The Waltons, so I didn't know this. So I start looking. 
And I wasn't finding anything and Kalanji actually gave me a clue and so that helped me uh, find out who this couple was and I found the real couple. I found their marriage record, I found the, um, the, the, the woman in that relationship, she had gone to Fisk, I think. Okay, I don't remember. She'd either gone to Fisk and the story says she went to Lane or she went to Lane the story says she went to Fisk. I don't remember which way it was, but I found them. And I blogged about finding them. I was contacted by one of their descendants who, and in my blog post, I think I ended with, I wonder if the family knows that their family is in the part of the root story. Like that was like one of my yeah. last lines. And so I was contacted by a descendant and she said, yes, we know. This is part, of, we know about this. That's pretty cool how they found you. Yeah, and she was just searching and she sent me a picture of the real couple and their three sons. And so I have a couple blog posts where I've shared that. She gave me permission to share it. And so that was just fascinating to know I was able to find this family for real. I'd wondered if the family knew about it and then I get contacted by a family member who said, yeah, we know. For folks listening, I'll put that photo oh, you'll put that in up the, on the blog. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Still longing for the old plantation and for the old folks at home. So your maiden name is Kuntz. Yes. Right. Uh, yes. Is that German? It is German origin. Okay. Mm -hmm. So tell us something about the Kuntz, in case there's a Kuntz okay. out there listening. Well, uh, <laughs> so I also do a Kuntz surname project. Okay. So I research Kuntzes all over the country, and that came about because I love my last name, Kuntz. Mm -hmm. And so it is German origin. The story, so my particular Kuntz branch comes from Eastern North Carolina, and there was a family that immigrated from Germany to the New Bern area in North Carolina, and they had a son named George, and the family was killed during a Tuscarora Indian raid, and George was the only survivor. He was a young boy, and so my mother calls him little boy George. <laughs> but, um, he was raised by one of the other you know, community members um, who ended up raising George, and George had several children, and then the children had children. So if you're a Kuntz and you're from Eastern North Carolina, you most likely are affiliated with this George Kuntz. Now, George being white means that if you're a black person from Eastern North Carolina, then you were likely enslaved by one of George Kuntz's family members. So that's the origin of it. It is from Germany, and of course it had different spelling, but it's K-O-O-N-C-E, at least in our branch now. And like I said, I research Kuntz's all over the country, so I know there's that cluster of Kuntz's. There's another cluster of Kuntz's in Pennsylvania from three brothers that immigrated. We don't know there's a relationship between these families that immigrated, but their last name was also Kuntz. Um, and so it's funny now, if I meet anyone or I'm on Facebook and anyone contacts me and they're a Kuntz, I ask them information about their grandparents, uh -huh. or depending on their age, great-grandparents, and I can pretty much know what part of the Kuntz's, where, where, their, where their origin story is at. Um, so um, I love Kuntz. And then I learned in my own family history that Okay, Kuntz isn't really my name. Now, it's not, it's not my name to begin with. It was our slaveholder's name. Right. But my great-grandmother, no, great-great-grandmother, her name was Caroline Kuntz. She got the Kuntz last name from her stepfather. So it wasn't even her biological father's name. Wow. <laughs> so, so it's not my name twice over. But I still, <laughs> I love it. It's a very unique name. Right. Uh, I, 
you know, I love to learn as much as I can about kuntzis all over the country. So I have a whole project just for that. And that, on your blog, it showed you where you met with some white kuntzis. Yes, uh, I have some very good kuntz friends. Yeah, yes. so talk about them and, and yeah, that encounter. Yeah, so, so one, of my, one of my best friends, his name is John Paul Kuntz, and he lives in Wisconsin. And I got to know him because I reached out to him when I was doing this kuntz research very early on because he has also been researching kuntzis. He's been researching kuntzis for 40 years. Um, and he had a newsletter that I found in the Tennessee State Library and Archives. He had a, about a four years worth of newsletters that he'd done back in the early mid-90s about kuntzis. And so I contacted him and reached out and we've become really good friends. In fact, I took my daughter up on a road trip to go meet, uh, visit with him and his family uh, just this past August. So He's been searching kuntzis for 40 years, and I've now picked up some of that. Um, and then even our family members have met. It's so funny. My brother and his daughter got to meet. My brother travels a lot for work and traveled out to Hawaii. John's daughter lives in Hawaii, and she saw that he was coming, so she reached out, and they met. I'm like, that's so funny. Like, neither one of them really does genealogy or family history, right. but they met. And I'm right. like, this is great. I've been, I've been friends with her father for 10 years, and she got to meet my brother. Yeah. I think that's so cool. I don't mean to tear up, but it, I mean, yeah. that really is the best Martin Luther King's dream, that the descendants of slave yes, holders. holders and, and I don't... John's immediate family, his ancestral lineage... It was not, I don't think any of them were my slaveholders. I think it was cousins of his direct right. ancestors. But to have that connection, yeah. I mean, we love each other. I mean, they're great. They're great. Yeah. I love yeah. them. I love that's, that family. That's and I've met other Coons families, too. We found out. Yes, we did. We found out. Now we know. We found out. We found out that Grandma plays the numbers. So... I would guess one of the benefits of doing the genealogy thing is, for health reasons, if anything, because you can detect if like maybe there's cancer in your family and you can take proper steps. But what are some of the other benefits? The biggest benefit I have found personally is just it gives you a broader sense of all those who came before you. You'd asked me earlier how I got into it, and I shared that I started when I was in, um, after I had my daughter in 2005. But my first curiosity about the people who came before me happened when I was nine years old. We had buried my aunt and I was in the cemetery with the family and I look around and I see all these headstones that say Kuntz. And so, and my father told me, yeah, these are all family members. And he pointed out particular Barfield Kuntz. And I was like, who's that? He said, that's my grandfather. I never knew him. And I remember at the time knowing that was the first time I knew of people that came before my grandparents. Like the people existed before my grandparents. I was nine years old. And so I count that as really my origin for even being interested in people that came before me. And so I think what genealogy does is it gives you that awareness of what their lives were like, all the things they experienced, and helps put you in a context. Because I do believe in the idea of like genetic memory and traits being passed down. And you can learn those things through researching your ancestors' lives and learn that they have characteristics that have been passed down to you. And so it just helps me feel like I fit more in, in the universe somehow because I, I know where I stand in place of all that came before me. And I think when I talk to others about the benefits, that's also what I hear is that it helps enrich the understanding of yourself even more. Okay. Well, I have a weird question for you because mm -hmm. I know sometimes when I'm concentrating on something or working on research, it ends up like say it's on a person in history that I'm doing a, a lesson on. They end up in my dreams visiting me. Have you had any family members visit you in your you dreams? You know, I can't, I can't say that I have. Um, 
Because in some cultures, they, they believe that they can come visit yes. you and give you a little push. Yes, or and advice. I've heard others share stories of family members that come to visit them. Yeah. I can't say I've had that personal experience. What I have had, okay, okay, visits, okay, maybe in a different way. When, when we buried my uncle, Stanley, at his funeral, there were three things that happened that we were all like, whoa, Stanley's communicating with us. So he was buried in a national cemetery in Sarasota, and there's a big lake next to the cemetery. Stanley loved water. And so that that was kind of interesting. Then this Walmart truck passes by. Stanley worked at Walmart. And then the guy who was handling the funeral arrangements at the cemetery site had the same name as my grandmother's first boyfriend that my mother had grown up hearing about all her life and about how he got away. He was the one that got away. Wow. And so to have those three things happen at once uh-huh. really struck us because we were like, okay, Stanley is communicating. And then, okay, I just posted this on the blog this summer. Maybe not this summer, a couple months ago. I've been in a big project to organize all of my family pictures and documents. And my grandmother had a set of medical appointment cards. And while I had them all together, I had not put them in any type of order or anything. I just had them together. So I organized those medical appointment cards. The first card that she had was a medical appointment card from when she was pregnant with Stanley. And the day I did this project was the day before, and the day before his death anniversary date. And so I felt he was again contacting us uh-huh. to say, you know, I'm, I'm still here. Uh-huh. And so those type of things have happened for me, not in a dream, mm-hmm. but they have, there have been these things that have happened in the course of my research or just events happening where I feel like I'm being contacted somehow by family. I hope you message me in the future like, hey, Stanley was trying to tell us where he buried some gold coins. <laughs> exactly. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Stanley got around. He, he would travel, so there's no telling. <laughs> he, was, he was a wanderer. My uh-huh. mom describes him as a wanderer. Uh-huh. He liked to just go, go. to different places. Mm-hmm. So maybe he did go bury some gold coins somewhere. <laughs> kin folks talking, kin folks laughing, you won't see a frown. someone's listening obviously they can reach out to you Mm -hmm. Uh, but also where do you recommend they start if they're interested in this yeah if you're interested in learning more about your history or your family you know background start by talking to family members um, particularly the elders in your family um, because they're gonna they're gonna have firsthand accounts so talk to them and if you can record it somehow maybe not uh, audio record if you don't want to but just write down notes and once you've had a chance to speak with them then start looking for documents to help take you back even further. And one of the first places we recommend people go to is the U.S. Census records because every 10 years the government does a census. And while it wasn't done for genealogy purposes, we can get a lot of information from it. And there is a privacy period. So the first census we have available to us now is 1940. And it's available for free online. You can just Google U.S. 1940 census and you can start looking for your family members in that census. And then Look for them in 1930 and then go back. If they want to reach out to you. Yeah, so um, my email address is my first name, Tania, T-A-N-E-Y-A, at gmail.com. I do have a website, which I think you'll link in in the blog. Uh Um, But you can reach out to me through email, and I'm happy to provide some tips. And what is that? Just uh, spell out the blog in case someone's just listening. Yeah, so my blog is um, Tania-Kalanji.com. I'll spell it T-A-N-E-Y-A, a hyphen, K-A-L-O-N-J-I dot com slash genblog, G-E-N-B-L-O-G, Gen for Genealogy. All right. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. If you'd like to learn more about African-American history, 
You might give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episode 185 a listen where Miss Kuntz's husband, in fact, Kalanji McClellan, talks about American history tracing through the lyrics of hip-hop music. Episode 172 is another good history episode featuring June Bear of the Lexington Historical Society where she relays the epic story of the outbreak of the American Revolution. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. I think I'll color him father I'm gonna